Our reading for tonight is Luke chapter 10, from verse 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he retraveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. Let's pray briefly. Our Father God, we thank you for your word and we pray that no matter how well we know the stories, that your spirit might work in power to change our hearts, that these would not just be familiar to our ears, but familiar in our lives. Amen. It is one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. There's no getting around it. Even if you've never really been in church, I'll bet you've heard of the Good Samaritan. The problem is that familiarity can, well, it can breed contempt amongst us. What I mean is that uh, the story that Jesus tells just loses its power. And the shock and the challenge of what Jesus is actually calling you and me to do tonight or for those who've been around for church for years and years, we, we just get consumed with uh, theological debates about, well, what does he mean by this? Or, or, or how do you understand that? And so we avoid the clear challenge of his plain words. And the challenge here is to truly, seriously love people, different people, people not like us, and to meet their needs even when it's costly and hard. And in a world that is more divided than ever, where racial and religious tensions were exploding into ugly violence, where, well, social and political differences keep us divided into tribes that never speak to one another except to shout insults, 
where the digital world has become viciously tribal, uh, really just no more than a series of self-righteous echo chambers, and where those who think differently or express the wrong opinion are, they're vilified, attacked, and destroyed without any mercy whatsoever. In a world like this, in a world like this, we're crying out for people who obey Jesus' call here. His radical word that commands us to love those who are not like us. I pray that we would do so tonight. Now the passage, uh, it really turns on three questions. Three questions that move us from the theoretical to the practical. Three questions which, if we're honest, expose all of us before God. Question one, what does God actually want from me? Question two, who is my neighbor? And question three, who am I a neighbor to? Just three questions. Firstly, uh, what does God want from me? Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It all begins with a smug lawyer coming to test Jesus. And don't we all hate smug lawyers as a recovering former lawyer? Uh, Anyway, as is always the case, he quickly finds himself in the hot seat and his own beliefs under scrutiny. I guess a number of us will know that experience. By all means, examine what Jesus teaches. Look into the evidence for the resurrection. Please do that. We would love to help you do that as a church. Get in touch uh, with uh, a friend who comes to church or, or contact us through the website. We'd love to help you do that. But you need to know, you need to know Jesus will not stay at the safe end of your microscope, allowing you to examine him. He won't just sit there passively, politely. He will examine you too. Now, the question the lawyer asks is actually a very good one. It's it's not trivial stuff that he goes for. It's the big one. What does God actually want from me? What does it look like to live a life that pleases Almighty God? How should I live if I want God to accept me in the end? Jesus, of course, turns it straight back to the lawyer. And the lawyer answers by quoting two key Old Testament texts from Deuteronomy 6.15 and Leviticus 19.18. What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. What God most wants from us is love. If we're to be part of God's people, if we're to share in his life, well, we need to love him with everything that we have and with everything that we are. And we need to love other people the way that we love ourselves. Verse 28, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Perhaps there are some barely stifled giggles in the crowd as Jesus sucks all of the debate out of this guy by agreeing with him. He's left with, oh, he'd come all prepared for this big theological debate uh, with his, his young acolytes around him, ready to, to see their, their master take on this upstart Jesus. And, and he's left with nothing to say. So, so he fires back another question, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbor? I think primarily he wants to justify himself in the eyes of the crowd. Uh, so he, he wants to j- draw Jesus. Hang on, there is a debate here. And he wants to draw Jesus into a debate that he thinks he can win. 
But the question he asks doesn't only open up a debate, it also opens up his heart. It's interesting that the question that reveals the ugliness and the selfishness that's lurking beneath the respectable exterior of this expert in the religious law is not a question asked by Jesus. It's a question that he asks himself. Who is my neighbor? It's the second question. Who is my neighbor? And it sounds like a reasonable question, doesn't it? Jesus said, you know, you should love your neighbor. Agreed with him, that's important. So, well, okay, well, then what is it? Who's my neighbor? But his aim is not to clarify understanding. It's to limit his responsibility. You can tell that because of the story that Jesus tells to answer him. He doesn't want to understand more. He wants to limit how broad the number of people he has to love is. That's what his aim is. Yeah, yes, Jesus, by all means, yeah, absolutely, amen to that. Love people. But of course, we don't mean all people. So, so who do we have to love? Do you notice he doesn't ask whether there is a line to be drawn? He just assumes that. He only asks where do we draw the line of those we should love and those we don't need to love. Now, I doubt you'll find many people who disagree with the theory that we're to love our neighbors. The problems come when we get down to the nitty-gritty of the practice. You see, we all seek to do what this lawyer does and effectively limit the definition of neighbor. We draw boundaries of responsibility to those of my family, my race, my religion, my educational background to those who are on the same side as me in whatever is the, the big debate or the cause that's stirring up social media at the moment, uh, to those who are popular, easy to like, fun, have good banter, people who we think are like us. We may not say those are the only people we'll love, but in practice, we limit our contact and we limit our love to those who are close to us. Jesus responds with one of the most famous stories ever told. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So in Jesus' story, there's a, a traveller unnamed traveler journeying the 18 or so miles from Jerusalem down to Jericho that famously descends around three and a half thousand feet and in one of the hidden path, passes through the mountains he's ambushed by unseen robbers they savagely beat him and leave him hovering somewhere between life and death with everything that he has even his clothes stripped away and gone the first two people who happen upon him are a priest and a Levite religious leaders exemplary citizens and both of them they pass by on the other side people propose all manner of theories of uh, religious um, cleansing and and ritual purity and whatever the, the simple fact is we're not told why they pass by that's not the point but if the crowd knows anything about jesus they know what's coming next oh yeah, yeah i know the punchline it's going to be an ordinary citizen not some religious person, just an ordinary citizen, maybe even a prostitute will come and help him. <laughs> but what Jesus actually says is far, far more shocking. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, 
came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. It calls to mind the picture of uh, Patrick Hutchinson from the racial justice protests in London a couple of weeks ago. Now, I mean, he did say it wasn't done out of any love for the guy. Uh, He just wanted to, uh, he didn't want the guy being beaten up and the people who beat him uh, thrown in prison. But, but it was such a, a visceral image of of what looks like a good Samaritan. This this uh, Black Lives Matter guy carrying uh, someone who's apparently a far right protester to safety to stop them being beaten senseless by a mob. But Jesus' example of the the Samaritan is is actually a whole lot more shocking than that. You see, to his audience, the impact would have been much more like a picture of an EDL, swastika-tattooed man carrying a Black Lives Matter protester to safety from a mob. That's ridiculous. That just wouldn't happen exactly. That's the impact of Jesus' story with the Samaritan. Now, six statements flesh out what it meant for this Samaritan, this most unlikely of people, to take pity on the wounded man, the Israelites. Verse 34, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds. Unless he carried bandages, it probably means he tore up his own clothes. He poured on oil and wine, costly things to to help sanitize the wounds and, and clean him up. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he walked, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He takes time. He takes trouble. He puts himself at risk, presumably. He bears cost, and he bears inconvenience. He doesn't leave it there, though. Uh, Having brought him to safety and tended him through the night, he leaves enough money for 24 days of board and lodging, as we read. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. His actions are self-sacrificial, they're costly, they go way beyond what's needed. Why does he do it? Martin Luther King Jr. gave an answer to this. Famously, he said, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Who is my neighbor? The final question, to whom am I a neighbor? There's no escape for the lawyer as Jesus concludes the story and turns the spotlight back on him with his third question. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's a far more searching question that Jesus puts to him. Who is my neighbor seeks to work out the limits, the boundaries of my responsibilities? To whom am I a neighbor? Who are you a neighbor to? Well, that looks outwards and says, look, tell me in practice, who are you serving? Who are you loving? It asks me, God's desire that you love people, what does that look like in your life? So how do we answer Jesus' searching question in the concrete situations of our daily lives? Given that the passage ends with him saying, go and do likewise, we've got to think about that. Now, it will, of course, be different for each of us, but I want to suggest three principles to help us. Another set of three. Uh, Just three things. There is no other. Evangelism isn't the only thing we should be doing, and don't cross the road. Let's run through these as we think, what practically do Jesus' words mean for you and me? 
The first principle is that there is no other. We all have categories of, of other, the people who, whether explicitly or just in practice, we just don't think are worthy of our effort, our time, our love, our attention. For some, it's, it's a hard category. We demonize those of a different race, a different religion, uh, and we're, we're happy to see them uh, just pushed away or even hurt. Famously, in the lead-up to the Rwandan genocide, the radio station RTLM prepared the Hutus for hacking apart their neighbors with a constant drip feed of dehumanization. The Tutsis were relentlessly characterized as cockroaches who need to be squashed. Now, I trust few of us would fall into such brutal dehumanizing thinking. But there is a softer, more subtle othering that actually all of us probably indulge in without even realizing it. Uh, we just don't bother getting to know people. We, we never put ourselves in a situation where we may, might have to love or be involved in the life of someone whose who's lack of education or accent differences mark them out as not like me. Or perhaps we ignore those who are just a little bit odd, who are not trendy and fun. Uh, we just wouldn't think to invest in getting to know those who are needy and difficult and not like us. See, there are, there are whole categories of people that effectively we keep at arm's length, so we never face the challenge of having to love them. And we can fool ourselves that we're happy to be a good Samaritan because we just never encounter these people. And all of us need to hear this. You have never met a human being who is not made in the image of God. You have never met a human being who is not made in the image of Almighty God. Those people we ignore, we fail to include, we don't see as worthy of our effort or our time. Those are the kind of people that Jesus thought it was worth coming and hanging on a cross and dying for. And so Jesus asks me and asks you, who gets your time? Who are you willing to inconvenience yourself to help? Who will you drop things for? Just my family, my friends, my tribe? There is no other. Every human is made in the image of God. Every human is my neighbor. Secondly, evangelism is not the only thing we should be doing. Now, there is a specific question that mature Christians often raise when thinking through what Jesus says here. And that is, well, look, shouldn't our priority as Christians be evangelism? You know, given the only way for people to be saved from God's eternal judgment is for them to, to hear about Jesus Christ and put their trust in his death and his resurrection to save them from their sins. Given that's the only hope for people's eternal salvation... Well, surely that should be our priority, telling people about Jesus. Isn't that the most good Samaritan-like loving thing I can do for, for my neighbor, to tell them about Jesus? To which the answer is yes. But, yes, absolutely. There is nothing more loving that any of us can do than to tell somebody about Jesus. There is no more loving act than to, to go to someone who is spiritually in the position of this man on the road, dead in their sins, and to tell them about Jesus Christ, whose, whose death brings forgiveness and whose resurrection by the Holy Spirit can bring them eternal life. There's nothing more loving than that. But, but here's the thing. We still find time to brush our teeth. Look, forgive me, that sounds trite. 
What I mean is, even those of us who say we shouldn't get distracted from the gospel by meeting social needs, even those of us who say things like that, well, we find time and we give resources to other stuff. Uh, We still learn to play musical instruments, go to university, spend money, go on holiday, get married, have families. We all manage to, to do more than just the most important thing. See, the context of uh, the passage and the content of the story help us here. The context is that Jesus has just sent out the 12 and then the 72 to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, the King Jesus has come to bring eternal life. And the story he tells is not someone who, who's going out on the road looking to help victims of muggings. He's traveling for business or whatever. But when he comes across the need, he meets it. The priest and the Levite walk on by, but the Samaritan stops what he's doing and gets involved with the need in front of him. Jesus' final words on earth command his followers what our mission in life is. Make disciples and teach people to to obey everything Jesus has commanded. And so all of us have the same life mission. Uh, We are to tell others about Jesus so they can find forgiveness and eternal life. But we also need to obey all the other stuff Jesus has commanded too, including the command here to go and do likewise, to be good Samaritans. Now, of course, there are difficult, complicated issues surrounding the the allocation of the limited resources of time and money that we all have. But the thing is, we make those decisions all the time. Besides, as Tabiti taught us so clearly from Matthew 5 last week at Revive Sunday, so often it is as Christians serve the needs of the world around us that unbelievers are drawn to the light of the gospel shining out from those good deeds. In other words, the parable that Jesus tells here is not primarily to encourage those of us serving as doctors or charity workers, social workers, inner city teachers, police, aid workers or whatever. This parable is primarily for those of us who don't have that calling. It says to all of us, look, whatever the primary business of your life, if you follow Jesus, then you must be willing to stop what you're doing and to devote costly time and resources to help urgent needs in front of you. Lastly, don't cross the road. (laughs) How on earth are we supposed to work it out, though? I mean, how do you work out which particular need to to meet? The first time you you turn on the news in the morning, flick it on your on your phone, you you just see this. You're just bombarded with a ticker tape of of desperation coming across your consciousness. Tens of thousands suffering just immeasurable horror in the in the civil war in Yemen. Uh, thousands of Christians in displaced people camps right now in, in India having been attacked by murderous Hindu mobs. Countless numbers of, of economic migrants and refugees trekking the dangerous journey up through North Africa uh, to risk everything at the hand of people smugglers on leaky unsafe boats across the Mediterranean. How do you, how do you work out what needs to meet? I think the principle we see here is, look, it's not... It's not straightforward, but don't cross the road. Don't cross the road. In other words, don't avoid the needs in front of you. Uh, For us as a church, perhaps there's a lot more we could be doing and should be doing, but 
the reason we got involved in the Tamar ministry, which uh, helps uh, victims of sex trafficking, modern day slaves, the reason we did that is it's right on our doorstep. We'd have to cross the road to avoid that issue, having a church located around here. And there are so many aching needs in the city in which you and I live. Homelessness, poverty, lack of access to education and justice, all these needs. And none of us can do everything and and our lives are all different, but is there something I can do? But of course, as well as looking out into the world, we need to start with where we are. Uh, For some of us, it's elderly parents who are needy and time-consuming and that we, we need to love or uh, befriending those who are a bit different and lonely and we're unlikely to get much back from. Looking after uh, siblings who've made a mess of their lives, perhaps, or, or colleagues who are difficult and nobody likes. Whatever it is, start with where we are. Don't cross the road. Now, Jesus' explanation in this passage of what it truly means to love others as ourselves makes it a desperately difficult command to keep. The lawyer's first mistake is he assumes God's law must be achievable by sinners, and so he seeks to to chop away at it until he's made it manageable and achievable. But God's law is, is primarily an expression of his perfect character. It tells us what he is like and so how we should live. It's a reflection of his perfect goodness and generosity. It's a declaration of, of what should be, not what is. It's a path of blessing to walk in, even if we'll never fully get there. Don't chop it down. Seek to live it out. But of course, he doesn't ask us to walk where he has not been. When we fail to love as Jesus commands, as all of us do, we remember that he came as the ultimate Samaritan. He stooped down from heaven. He gave up his divine majesty to help us when we were utterly helpless At great cost, the cost of his life, he rescued us, bearing our sins, giving us forgiveness. And he didn't just pay for us to stay at an inn while we recuperated for a couple of weeks. He paid the price for us to be adopted as children of God, welcome in his eternal paradise forever and ever. And wonderfully, the true Samaritan doesn't just give us forgiveness by his death. By his spirit, he also gives us a new heart according to Ezekiel 36, a heart that grows in compassion and self-denying love for others, a heart that seeks to obey Jesus' uncomfortable, uncompromising call to you and me to go and do likewise. Our Father God, we, we pray that you would help us not to shy away from the demands of Jesus' words, but to seek to live them out for your glory and the good of the needy in this world. In your Son's name. Amen.